0: about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire.
1: Peace be with you. Friends, how prominent a role jealousy plays in the great literature of the world. Think of Shakespeare's Iago, or Melville's great story Billy Budd. Think of the story of Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis, or the tale of Saul and David in 1 Samuel. Even look to a, a popular film. I saw it not that long ago, a, a replay of the old film, A Star is Born. But think of how many stories in the tradition up to the present day are driven by jealousy, envy. It's such a powerful dynamic in human relations, a negative one, of course, but powerful nonetheless. What is jealousy? What is jealousy? Thomas Aquinas says, Jealousy is an irrational anger at the success of others. Interesting in that, that little phrase. It's an irrational anger at the success of others. Gore Vidal's line comes to mind here. I know I've cited it to you before. And Gore Vidal, who just died a couple of weeks ago, he said, When a friend of mine succeeds, something in me dies. Really good, it seems to me, as a characterization of jealousy an irrational anger or resentment at the success of others, especially others who are close to us. Often we're not jealous of of distant figures. You're not really jealous of the success of of someone across the world or, or some grand political figure. You tend to be jealous of someone much more in your orbit, your circle of friends and relations. Dante, as you know, punishes the envious as follows. They have their eyes sewn shut, like the eyes of uh, of falcons in the Middle Ages. Now, why? Because they spend so much of their lives looking resentfully out at others. So shut your eyes. Stop looking with resentment at the success of others. Now, it should be clear, a very close cousin of envy is ambition. Because if the success of others bothers you, then one way to handle that is to make sure that you get ahead. You preclude their success by uh, getting ahead. Or turn it around, if you're ambitious for fame and position, well, then you'll spend a lot of your time resenting those who might be rivals to you. Ambition and envy feed on each other. But they both have, don't they, a particularly bitter taste, if I can put it that way. There's something, I don't know, particularly shameful and depressing about ambition and envy. We're ashamed of them ashamed to confess them. But yet they're all <laughs> present in our lives. They're they're operative. And notice how the author of the letter of James, we've been reading it for the past several weeks now from that extraordinary letter of James. And can I encourage you, friends, at some point this week, pick up the letter of James and just read it through. It's very short. You can easily read it in one sitting. And we've been marching through it now the last several weeks, and every week there's something of tremendous Practical, ethical uh, import. But the uh, author of James, Couples Envy and Ambition. Listen now. Beloved, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every foul practice. Now, there's a line to chew on for the next week. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There is disorder in every foul practice. That's a terrific account, by the way, of why we refer to envy as a capital sin. Right? Just from the Latin, caput, meaning head. It means it's a kind of um, font of many other sins. It's a head from which a lot of other dysfunction uh, flows. When you're seized by envy or ambition, you'll soon find your whole life Colored by them. All kinds of bad behavior will flow from them. Okay, so where do they come from, envy and ambition? Listen again to James, it's very helpful. Where do the wars and where do conflicts among you come from? Is it not, he says, from your passions that make war within your members? Now, that's a statement I think that merits very close attention. Again, where do the wars, where do conflicts among you come from? Is it not from your passions that make war within your members? In other words, the external conflicts come ultimately from interior divisions, from a lack of interior cohesion, this War within your members. It means the battle going on inside of you. The battle inside of you between your mind and your will, between one passion and another, between your soul and your body. When those are at war, they will tend to give rise to external conflicts. When we've lost the center, our sense of connection to Christ, then we fall apart interiorly. Now that's an image I know I've probably overused with you, but it's always helpful to me, of the rose window. At the center of which is Christ, and around which in harmonious patterns are all the other elements. It's a symbol of the interiorly composed self. Christ in the middle, everything else cohering around that middle. But when that Center is lost. Then an interior cacophony results. The harmony disappears. The harmony devolves into this jumble that all of us sinners recognize when we look inside. And see, here's the point. When you fall apart on the inside, you tend to cause trouble on the outside. That's a principle. Bring it to the bank spiritually. When someone is regularly causing trouble on the outside, it's almost certainly the case that something's gone awry on the inside. The exterior jumble caused by the interior jumble. And in light of this, very interesting analysis James gives us, we can discern the solution, which appears, by the way, beautifully in our Gospel for today. As he journeys with the Twelve, Jesus clearly lays out his destiny, his mission, his purpose. Here's what he says. The Son of Man will be rejected by men who will kill him, and then he will rise from the dead. In a word, he lays out the paschal mystery, the journey of love that will take him through self-renunciation to fullness of life. That's the mystery. That's the mission. He's implying that it's their mission too, that they should follow him on that same road. But, but, like so many of us sinners, they don't really get it, and they were afraid to question him, it says. It's another way of saying they, they just didn't they didn't get their minds around this. And so what follows is a scene that would be comical if it weren't so tragic. Having just heard the vision of self-forgetting love, what do the disciples commence to argue about? Which one of them is the greatest? Now again, you're tempted to laugh because the Master has just laid out to them what it's all about, the mission of a self-denying love, even unto death. That's the mission. What are they talking about? Which one of us is the greatest? And in that, we see the entire tragedy of envy and ambition. They undermine the mission. Again, think of the mission of Israel during the time when Saul was pursuing David. The mission was to do battle with the Philistines, but during that whole tragic period, Israel fell into a civil war, and so the mission was radically unrealized. Here, what we hear from Jesus, the mission is a self-forgetting love that permits the divine love to surge through us into the world. That's the Paschal Mystery. That's the heart of the Christian thing. A self-renouncing love that allows the divine love to surge through us into the world. To worry, therefore, about who is the greatest is more than a waste of time. It's a direct contradiction to this mission. And so, at this point, Jesus proposes a solution. Takes a little child, sets him in their midst, and says, Whoever receives one child such as this in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but the one who sent me. So, the solution to envy and ambition is a little child whom Jesus places like an icon in their midst. What are children capable of? Why are they being proposed here as the solution? I'll just say a couple things. First of all, and I maybe parents will quarrel with me here, but I think you'll see what I mean. They're capable of being commanded. What I mean is a child deep down, despite protestations on the surface, is yearning for authority. If you leave little kids completely undirected, with no leadership, they'll devolve very quickly into a very unhappy situation. A child yearns for authority to be commanded. Well, here's the thing. No matter how mature we are in the human sense, vis-a-vis God, we all remain appropriately children in the sense that we yearn, we ought to yearn, to be commanded. Deep down, what we want spiritually is to know from God what we are to do, to receive our mission. Like children, we yearn for that authority. Those who are walking the path of mission are more than willing to be commanded. They've given up their pretensions to self-direction. And hence, they are not preoccupied with who gets noticed, who gets what assignment, or who is owed what for what. Here's a second thing about little children that I think is relevant here. Children are able radically to live in the present moment, to be lost in play or in the contemplation of something that they find interesting. Watch little kids when they're really kind of in a, in a joyful um, frame of mind. They're able to give themselves to the now in a way that most of us can't because we are fussing about the past, savoring faded glory or licking old wounds, or we're preoccupied with the future, aspiring, hoping, fearing what might come. But see, God is available. Grace is available now. Now. And see, a child is able to live in the present, which is why, in the present rather, which is why we must be like little children. Envy tends to live in the past because it's resenting past uh, uh, wounds and offenses, it's resenting the success of others. Ambition lives in the future. Stop living in those two places. Be like a child, willing to be commanded, willing to surrender to the now. And the great now is God's mission, which is to forget your ego and so to allow his love to surge through you into the world. And God bless you.
0: I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Four years in the making, and it's finally here. Our new Catholicism
1: documentary series, book, and study program are now available to order online at Catholicismseries.com. Will you help me introduce this epic film series to your parish, school, family, and friends? Catholicism is an unprecedented adventure around the world and deep into the faith. Learn more at Catholicismseries.com or call 1-866-928-1237. That's 1-866-928-1237.